to honestly a great friend to me i love this guy i really can't commend him to you enough he was with us for for a number of years served his church really well a man who loves the word of god wants to see it impact people's lives and so i'll pray for you is that okay good answer I'm just going to pray for Duncan, and then we're going to hear from the Word of God. Lord, I thank you for Duncan. I thank you for this man who is, just loves your Word so much, just loves you so much. I pray that uh, today we would catch some of that infectious love for you. I just pray you would speak through him, Holy Spirit, that there would be yeah, power and anointing on him. Lord, I thank you for the gifting that you've given him. And I pray, yeah, we would receive and be blessed from that. In Jesus' name, amen. Go for it. Thanks, Aaron. Uh, it is a real, real pleasure to be back, to be honest. I love this church. I pray for this church. I miss you guys in Fairham. Um, so it is really lovely to be back and to be back preaching. I'm surprised you invited me, but I'll take advantage of it. And I'll be preaching probably two or three hours this morning um, as my reputation precedes me. If you don't know who I am, <laughs> I like to preach a long time. I promise I'll finish roughly on time. Uh, I'm going to pray again, if that's okay. I know Aaron just did, but I'm gonna, I want to pray for us once more. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are our Lord and Saviour, and we gather together in your presence this morning. And I ask that your Holy Spirit would move in our midst, speak to each of our hearts. Lord God, I pray we would see Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ crucified once more as Lord and Saviour, and, and you would stir our hearts to make that the most important thing in each of our lives, Lord God, that we might leave this place and live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. That's a quote by Stephen R. Covey. It also, incidentally, was the title of a sermon Simon Lee Jones preached in November 2011, so six years ago. I had the pleasure of hearing that sermon twice, because um, Simon repeated his sermons. And, uh, um, but yeah, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Simon was preaching from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2 where Paul, the apostle, writes to the Corinthian church. And he says, While I was with you, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. What Paul is saying to this church in this letter is, I was so focused on teaching you about Jesus. I was so focused on teaching you about Jesus crucified that it was as if I knew nothing about anything else at all. I was so focused on thinking about Jesus and Jesus crucified that it was as if I knew nothing else. I was so focused on speaking about Jesus and Jesus crucified. It was as if I knew nothing else at all. And so Simon's sermon six years ago was, we've got to make Jesus and we've got to make Jesus' crucifixion the main thing in our lives and we, and we need to fight for that. We need to say, yes, Jesus is the main thing in my life. And especially Jesus crucified, Jesus dying on the cross for the sins of the world. And so that's my plan for this morning, my hope for this morning. I'm going to preach from Matthew 27, the moment where Jesus dies on the cross. And I hope that each of us, every single one of us here, would leave this morning with, with just Jesus' crucifixion so in our minds and so in our hearts that God once more captures our hearts, that in everything we do, that would be the most important thing. Jesus, Jesus would be the most important thing. And Jesus crucified would just so capture our hearts and minds. That's my prayer and hope for this morning. So let's read. Uh, if you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 27. 
uh, and it will appear on the screen as well. And I'm going to read uh, verses 45 to 56. So Matthew 27, 45 to 56. Jesus is already on the cross at this stage in the story. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy, holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. That may be a passage that you're familiar with, um, but I hope to bring fresh understanding to all of us in the room, even if we've heard uh, this passage preached many times. As, as you've just heard from that Bible passage, at the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, there were many signs and miracles. There was darkness in the middle of the day from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. There was a, t a temple curtain that was torn from top to bottom, a thick curtain that, that couldn't possibly be, be torn unless it was a supernatural move of God. There was an earthquake. There were rocks splitting. And there were grave tombs opening and dead people rising. In other words, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, God chose this moment to perform many miracles and many signs. And each one of those miracles has meaning. It was as if God was commentating on the death of Christ through the miracles that, would ha that happened. Each miracle has meaning that helps us understand why Jesus, why would the Son of God, Jesus Christ, die on the cross? Well, these miracles, these amazing things that were happening, help us understand why. And so that's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to take us through each of those miracles and start to understand what that says about Jesus' death and what it says about our lives now in 2017. So the first miracle in verse 45. It went dark from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. In, in the middle of the day. I wonder, have you ever asked yourself why? Why did it go dark in the middle of the day when Jesus was on the cross? Maybe you thought about the question scientifically. I think it was a solar eclipse, or I think it was just dark cloud. And, and was it a darkness that covered the whole earth, or just a darkness that carried, covered just that part of Israel at the time Christ was dying? Maybe you thought about that question scientifically. I'm not going to answer the question scientifically. Maybe you thought about that question emotionally. Why did it go dark when Jesus died? Well, it's because it was a sad moment, and the darkness to reflect the sadness of the moment. But I wonder whether you've ever asked yourself theologically, Biblically, why did it go dark when Jesus was on the cross? I don't know whether you've ever asked yourself the question if you've been a Christian many years. Well, to answer that question, we have to go back to the Old Testament and understand 
what darkness in the middle of the day meant to your typical Jew who'd be reading Matthew's Gospel. To verses like Zephaniah 1.15 says, A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Or maybe to Joel 2 verse 31. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. You see, in the Old Testament, darkness in the middle of the day or the sun being turned to darkness was a sign, was symbolic of God's judgment coming upon sin. And my favorite example of this is from Amos chapter 8. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Amos chapter 8. I'm just going to read you some of these verses from Amos. So I'm going to read Amos 8, 4 to 10. This guy was a prophet, and he, he liked to bring it thick and heavy. So this is, this is a heavy prophecy. Hear this, you who trample on the needy, and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over, that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the effer small and the shekel great, and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account? And everyone mourn who dwells in it, and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. Amos prophesies and he says, those who have sinned will receive judgment for their sin. And on that day when judgment comes upon their sin, the land will tremble, verse 8. And on that day, God will make it the sun go down at noon, verse 9. There will be darkness over the land. And verse 10, it will be like morning for an only sun. I hope you can see the parallels between the death of Christ in Matthew 27 and the prophecy of Amos in Amos 8. There's earthquakes, there's darkness. It's like an only son dying. But there's a difference, isn't there? I don't know whether you saw the difference. Because in Amos 8, it's sinners who are being judged. It's sinners who are being punished for the sins that they've committed. But in Matthew 27, it's Jesus Christ. And, and I don't know whether you, you saw the sins that were mentioned in Amos. Amos mentioned the sin of trampling the needy and not looking after the poor. I wonder whether, whether any of us can see that in our own lives. Sometimes we don't buy ethically. Sometimes we don't treat the needy people, the poor people in this world, as they need to be treated. And Amos was talking about people who dealt deceitfully and made money deceitfully, and people who didn't observe the Sabbath or observe the festivals that God had commanded they observe. In other words, he was talking about sinners who didn't worship God as he said he should be worshipped. And I wonder whether we can see that in ourselves as well. Times when we haven't worshipped God as he says he should be worshipped. Times when we've dealt deceitfully with other people. Times when we maybe lied at work or lied on a CV. 
Only whether you can see any of yourself in this. Amos says those people, those sinners, will be judged. But Jesus wasn't like that at all. Jesus was the, the opposite of that. Jesus didn't trample on the needy. He cared for the needy. He healed them. He even touched people with leprosy, which is something no one did. He, of all the people who ever lived, Jesus was the one who didn't trample on the needy. He was the one who cared and loved and lifted up the needy. And he didn't deal deceitfully or make money in wrong ways. And he didn't disobey God's commands on how he should be worshipped. Jesus Christ was perfect in every way in the way he worshipped God. So how can Amos 8 be about Matthew 27? It doesn't make sense, does it? In, in Amos 8, sinners, in Matthew 27, it's the perfect one, the perfect one who was blameless and sinless. The only way, therefore, to understand the darkness over the land is to understand Jesus as a substitute. It's the only way. If the darkness over Christ's death stands for God's judgment upon sin, and Amos 8 says sinners are to be punished, we must understand a substitution to be taking place. Jesus says, I'm righteous, blameless, I'm perfect, there's nothing I've ever done wrong. And he looks at human beings and he sees that they're sinners and all of them have trampled upon needy people. All of us have trampled upon needy people. All of us have dealt deceitfully in various ways in our life. And he says, let me substitute in your place. The law, the prophecy of Amos says that you should die for your sins. You should receive the judgment of God. But I love you. I care for you. Let me substitute in for you and receive the penalty that you deserve. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, says of Jesus Christ, He became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus takes upon himself all our sin, everything we've done wrong, all the things mentioned by Amos, and dies on the cross, receives the judgment that we deserve. And in return, we receive the righteousness of Christ given to us, that we might go free and stand blameless, before our God, if only we believe and put our faith in Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? Jesus, our substitute, who died on our behalf, who endured the wrath of God, symbolized by the darkness over the land. He substituted himself for us in love. And so for three hours, Jesus hangs on the cross in darkness in the middle of the day. And then, at the third hour, he cries out in agony, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In these words, Jesus expresses the deepest, most painful part of his crucifixion. It wasn't the physical agony of dying on a cross. It wasn't the emotional sadness of all his disciples giving up on him and leaving him and walking away. No, rather, it was the agony of being forsaken by his father in heaven that was the hardest part and that's what makes him cry out in pain on the cross why have you forsaken me my god church this is the ultimate punishment for sin being forsaken by god and when you think about god as the source of all good gifts he's the source of love and joy and light he's the source of He's the giver of laughter and good food and friendship and family. And, and all the good things from life flow from God. They're gifts from God. So to be forsaken by God is terrible. It's dreadful. It is the worst thing that 
possibly befall anyone in any way at any time. And the hard message of Christianity is this. Those who do not put their faith in Jesus Christ will endure at the end times a judgment. They will be forsaken by God. And so the call of Christianity and and the, the challenge of Christianity is put your faith in Jesus because he endured being forsaken so that we can be received by God. I just want to pause here for a moment and marvel at Jesus Christ on the cross because these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, are pacing words. That is not what I would have said when I was on the cross. Um, he's in this moment of agony, terrible pain, and he quotes scripture. Isn't that amazing? He's quoting from Psalm 22 in those words, a messianic psalm that, that brings many prophecies and predictions about Christ's death. Um, it's just amazing to see Jesus' purity that he'd quote scripture in this moment on the cross. But he's not just quoting scripture, he's also showing that his deepest longing in his heart is to be with God his Father. Like his deepest longing is not to be taken down from the cross. His deepest longing is not, not that his friends would come and gather around and see him die. No, his deepest longing is to be with God his Father, to know his presence, and therefore his greatest pain is to be forsaken by God. Ben Fleming, um, this week, there was a little, um, I don't know what you're calling them, like little sound bites, like three or four minute videos with little messages. And, and I'm going to quote Ben Fleming. I think he sold it from Rick Warren, but there we go. Um, ben said, people are like tea bags. It takes hot water to find out what's really inside of them. And he was talking about trials and difficulties in life and saying, actually, when, when a person goes into trials and difficult times in their life, that's when you find out what they're really about. They're like a tea bag and the tea comes out and the flavor. Right? That was Ben's amazing metaphor. I'm, I'm nicking that and saying, look at this moment in Jesus' life when he's thrown into the hottest water of all, dying for the sins of the world on the cross. He's enduring terrible physical pain, also the the emotional pain of being rejected by being forsaken by his father. He's in the hottest of hot water, and what comes out? Pure, faith-filled longing to be in the presence of God the Father. Wow. That's amazing. I wonder whether I wonder whether we're like that. That's the deepest longing of our heart. And when we're thrown into those life situations of hot water, whether we still long for God the Father's presence in our life like Jesus did. And that's why Jesus is my Lord. That's why he's my king. I don't want any other Lord, any other king than Jesus Christ. Because Jesus showed on the cross that he was totally pure, full of love and dying for me on the cross, but totally pure. His heart, there was no blemish in there. On the cross, he became sin, but he did not become a sinner. He still acted righteously on the cross. And that's why he's my king, because I don't want a king who's going to fall apart when times get tough. I don't want a king who's going to do evil stuff. I want a king who's always going to do good and always love his, his, his followers, his people. And that's who Jesus is. That's what Jesus reveals himself to be on the cross, is a perfect, loving, kind pure, glorious king who's worthy to be called my Lord, who's worthy to be called our Lord. There's no other king I want in my life than Jesus Christ. Consider your most faithful friend. Consider the husband who adores his wife. Consider the mother who cherishes her child. None of those things come close 
for the love of Jesus Christ for us that he displayed on the cross. Not even close. Not even close. Such is Jesus' love for us. As the passage says, the people continue to mock Jesus on the cross. They um, pretend that he's calling Elijah. And then in verse 50, Jesus dies. And the passage says he yields up his spirit. And, and I think that word yield is an important word. It, it's as if Jesus is willingly giving himself over to death. He yields up his spirit. He chooses to die. Once more, the love of Christ is shown. Jesus didn't die because the Romans crucified him. Jesus didn't die because the Jews wanted the Romans to crucify him. Jesus died because he yielded himself. He yielded himself to die. He willingly gave himself up for us. And then, at the death of Christ, five emphatic, amazing miracles take place immediately afterwards. And I, I, I sort of want to retranslate this passage very, very slightly. Because the ESV puts like almost like a separate sentence in the middle and it disappoints me. So have a look at um, verses 51 to 52. This is what I think this is what I think the Greek actually says. So Jesus dies, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs were also opened, and the many bodies of saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Right? I know that's only a very slight change to the original if you've got it in front of you. But it's basically and, and, and. All these things happen one after the other at the moment Jesus dies on the cross. And they all flow into one another and they all, they all work together to give us a really clear picture of what Jesus has just achieved on the cross for us. The curtain was torn, the earth shakes, the rocks split, and the, the tombs are opened and the, the, dead, um, the dead saints rise from the dead. So let's talk about quickly... Uh, I'm just having a look at my time. Quickly, let's talk about those five miracles and what they mean. So firstly, the curtain was torn. What does that mean? Why was the curtain torn? What does that say about the death of Jesus Christ? Well, to understand what the curtain represented, we need to go back to Genesis. We can go all the back, back to Genesis, and we're going to talk about Genesis chapter 3. Now, in Genesis, Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. And there, there were lots of amazing things about the Garden of Eden, but two that stand out for me. Firstly, in the Garden of Eden, God walked with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were walking alongside God. They were seeing him face to face. They had perfect fellowship with God in the Garden of Eden. That sounds amazing, doesn't it? Fellowship with God face to face, walking with each other. And secondly, the Garden of Eden is attracted to me because in the Garden of Eden is the tree of life. And people who eat from the tree of life will live eternally. So the Garden of Eden, in many ways, biblically, is symbolic of being in the presence of God and living eternally because of those two things. But Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They ate the fruit that God said not to eat, and that came with a punishment. And the punishment was that they were taken out of the garden told to leave the garden and placed at the gate of the Garden of Eden was a cherubim. Now, you might think about cherubim as little babies with little wings floating about and looking cute. Not biblical. Biblically, cherubim are massive angels with great flaming swords who are basically going to stop you by all means possible, including death, to get you into the Garden of Eden. Basically, they are not letting you in. There is no way you can get past the cherubim. They're not 
floating cute babies. They're scary, massive angels with swords, with fiery swords. I, I thought about putting a picture of the elders, like the cherubim faces, like, like, but I didn't do that in the end. I didn't have time, unfortunately. That would have been good. <laughs> but in my head, Aaron looked the best as like a little cute baby cherubim, and Andy looked the best as like the like really true fiery sword angels. So, um, so God places a cherubim at the entrance to the Garden of Eden. Now skip forward uh, one chapter to Exodus 26, and God's giving instructions for how the tabernacle is to be created. And he says, so the tabernacle is where the Ark of the Covenant dwelt and was a tent, which is where the presence of God was. And God said, I want you to make a curtain, a thick curtain as an entrance to the tabernacle. And on that curtain, I want you to sew in patterns of cherubim. So the cherubim at the tabernacle, once more, as this curtain, this barrier was built between the presence of God inside the temple and the people outside the temple. It was the cherubim who guarded the way because they were knitted in to this curtain that was created. And then when the temple was built, the tabernacle became the Holy of Holies. So the Holy of Holies was the place right in the center of the temple. It was where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, and it was the place where God's presence most fully, most amazingly and powerfully dwelt. And it still had these curtains with the cherubim stitched in. No one would go into the Holy of Holies apart from one person once a year, the high priest. And before he went in, he would offer sacrifices for his own sin because he knew he couldn't go into the presence of God as a sinful man, otherwise he'd be destroyed, he would die. And actually because of that, he wore a little bell around his ankle. And so if he died and the bell stopped ringing, the people outside would like drag him out by the rope that was attached to his ankle as well. Because they thought this is a very real possibility. The high priest might die in the presence of God because God is so holy and awesome and humans are so simple and messed up and do things wrong. So he'd offer sacrifices for his own sin so that he could go in without dying. And then he'd go through the curtain into the presence of God, into the Holy of Holies, and there he would offer sacrifices for everybody else's sin in the nation of Israel. And once a year he'd do this on the Day of Atonement um, so that everyone's sin could be forgiven. When Jesus dies, that curtain with the cherubim is torn apart from top to bottom. What does that mean? Well, firstly, it means the high priest's role and his sacrifices are now obsolete. He doesn't need to go into the Holy of Holies to offer sacrifices anymore because Jesus has offered one great, fantastic sacrifice once for all sins so that anything we do, anything that other people have done in the past that is sinful, for all who believe in Christ, those sins can be forgiven. So there's no need for the high priest to go through the curtain once a year and offer sacrifices anymore. That's the first thing that the, temple, the curtain being torn means. But the second thing, is amazing because it's like the Garden of Eden is opened. The cherubim are destroyed as the curtain is torn in a sense. And God's presence, that place where human beings walked with God in the Garden of Eden, is open once more. And all can go in by faith to be in the presence of God. And what's more, there in that place is the tree of life. Christ's death on the cross opened the way that all of us can go into the presence of God, be in relationship with him, but also have access to this wonderful gift of eternal life with God. That's what the curtain being torn into means. That's what Jesus' death achieved for us on the cross. 
And so let me ask you this morning is, are you aware of that? When you pray, you're thinking, wow, Jesus, you won this for me. I can come into your presence, Lord God, because Christ died for me on the cross. Thank you so much. And, and I know that you're so holy, Lord. So how is it possible that I could come into your presence like this only by the blood of Jesus Christ who died for me on the cross? I want our prayers to be filled with reverence and awe and wonder at what Christ has opened up for us because it's wonderful to be in the presence of God. is such a glorious, wonderful gift that Jesus has won for us. And that gift of eternal life is also so glorious and wonderful and sweet. Do you pray that this is a reality, that this is a thing that happens? So that's the first miracle after Jesus' death. Secondly, the earth shook. Um, I don't know whether you know anything about earthquakes in the Bible. What's the, what does the earth shaking mean for our understanding of Christ's death? Well, we went back to Genesis to understand the curtain. Let's go forward to Hebrews to understand the earth shaking. I'm reading Hebrews 12, verses 26 to 28. At that time, God's voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Now, I don't know whether you got it in there, and I'm sorry it's not on the screen, but when things are shaken, it's a sign that they are temporary, that they can be destroyed. When things first start to shake, it's a symbol that they might collapse in the future and be destroyed in the future. So when the earth shakes, it's a sign that this earth is temporary and will one day be destroyed and that one day a new earth and a new heaven will come in that's perfect and unshakable. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Isn't it fantastic? We have a kingdom in Christ that is unshakable, even though this earth is shakable. And so as Christ dies and the earth shakes, it's a symbol of the impending destruction of the earth. It's, it's, it's a symbol that Christ's death doesn't just change us and our relationship with God, but also the earth will be made new as well. Our relationship with God made new, but also the earth made new. The old earth will be destroyed because it's shakable, but the new earth will be unshakable and will live eternally with God. So the earth shakes and then the rocks split. Now, clearly, the rock splitting is a consequence of the earthquake, but I think there's something more going on here when the rock splits. So some commentators think that this is a fulfillment of Luke 19, where Jesus says, if you guys don't praise, I'll raise up rocks to cry out my praise instead. That's how some people understand the rock splitting. That doesn't, I don't really believe that, necessarily. I don't think it's obvious. But there are some things in the passage which give us a clue. What does it mean that the rocks would split? Um, the word for split is exactly the same word to describe the curtain that was torn. Torn and split are identical words in the Greek. And so here's, here's what I think the rock splitting means. The curtain was a barrier between God's presence and the people. In the same way, the rocks act as a barrier between those who have died and life. And so when the rocks split, just as the curtain was torn, so the way for those people who are in the tombs uh, is opened and the dead people can rise to life. Do you see that? So the curtain is presence of God for all who are alive, and the rock splitting is the way opening for dead saints to rise to life again. 
And so these last three miracles I can put all together in one. The rock split, the tombs being opened, and the dead saints rising from their grave and entering into the city. Life, eternal life, flows from what Christ did on the cross. That's what these miracles mean, don't they? That Jesus, by dying, has opened up the way to eternal life. Now, normally in Scripture, it's Jesus' resurrection associated with our resurrection from the dead, but here, it's, it's Christ's death associated with our resurrection. And so I want to ask the question, how? How does Christ's death open up the way to resurrection from the dead? Or, or to put it a different way, how, does the, how is death defeated by the death of Christ? Well, this is the reason. Christ's death made, ato- made an atonement for sin. So sin's power is defeated. And sin's ultimate weapon is death. Because sin, when we sin, we, we bring judgment upon ourselves and we wander away from the source of life in God and therefore we ultimately end up in death. Sin's most powerful weapon is death. So when Christ defeats sin by taking it upon himself and dying and taking sin to the grave, he also defeats the power of death and opens up the way to resurrection through Jesus Christ. Observe the defeat of death in the death of Christ. Praise be to Jesus who has rescued us from death. By the love he showed on the cross, Christ has rescued us. He's opened up the way to be in the presence of God through the curtain tearing. He's he's split the rocks so that those who are dead can rise from the grave. And all of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ will rise from the grave when we die in the physical body and live with God eternally and forever. How then should we respond? By making Jesus Christ and Christ crucified the main thing in every moment of our entire lives. I've already talked about prayer, but when we pray, are we thinking about how it's only possible through Christ's death? When we worship, are we filled with gratitude for what Christ did for us on the cross? When we have conversations with people, are we thinking, oh, Christ's death so glorious, so wonderful, I just want to bring this into the conversation in some way. When we're going through difficult times, when we're thrown into the hot water, are we thinking, yes, this is difficult, but Christ died for me, I'm forgiven, I can be in the presence of God, this is going to help me get through, this is a strength in difficult times. When we rejoice, yes, rejoice about the way God blesses us in various, in various ways in life, but also bring in rejoicing at the death of Christ because of what it's secured for us. When we're at work, when we're with our families, when we're relaxing at home, let's make Jesus Christ and Christ crucified the main thing. Because the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And Christ and Christ crucified is the main thing in all of life. Let's rejoice in that. Let's hold on to that. Let's fight for that in everything we do. That this moment, this stunning moment in history where Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross, let that moment change every other moment we have in this life. Every moment impacted by the death of Christ that moment in history that happened so many years ago. I'm going to close in prayer, I think, because I've gone over time. So let me pray. Stand up if you'd like to and you want to. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll leave this place. And like Paul, we'll say together, I know nothing but Christ and Christ crucified, and let that amazing truth impact how we live our lives. Let's, let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for your death on our behalf. You are a glorious, perfect, 
loving, caring Lord. You are so pure. You love us so much. You're, that moment on the cross where you quoted scripture, we love you for that, Lord God. But more than that, we love you for the sacrifice that let us enter into your presence. Thank you that our sins are forgiven. And Lord God, I just pray as we leave this place, we would know in our minds and in our hearts that through the death of Christ, we are loved, we are saved, we can enter into the presence of God, we can live eternally with God, and we just let this moment shape everything we do. Lord God. I pray this week, everything we do would, be, we would have a shadow cast over it by the death of Christ on the cross, and that would dictate to us what we do and what we say and how we are in life. Holy Spirit, come into our hearts, remind us of that amazing truth, that Christ is our Saviour and he was crucified for us. Come Holy Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name.